some of the women I wrote about did, you know, openly admit to each other what they feared most was the firing squad at dawn. But they still carried on their work because they knew that the British needed the information, the intelligence they were gathering. It was the only way they could ultimately win the war. Welcome to Spy Masters. I'm your host, Antonia Senior. In this episode, the story of Edith Cavell, nurse, spy, heroine. Debate has raged about Edith ever since her death. Was she an agent of British intelligence or has her role been exaggerated? Historian Helen Fry is here to answer the question definitively. Helen has written and edited more than 25 books covering the social history of the Second World War, British intelligence, espionage, spies... There is nothing Helen doesn't know about the role of women in intelligence. In fact, that's the entire topic of her latest book, Women in Intelligence. It's a groundbreaking study of the role of women in British espionage throughout the 20th century. We'll be talking about how Helen's research has led her to some incredible insights about the real Edith Cavell. We'll talk heroism, resistance, spies and firing squads. We've got some brilliant guests coming up on Spymasters podcasts, including... Former head of the CIA, General David Petraeus. So follow us on social media and wherever you get your podcasts. Now I'll hand you over to me talking to Helen. Helen, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm delighted to be part of it. Thanks for the invitation. Not at all. It's brilliant to have you here. Your book is quite a feat of uh, archival research. It's extraordinary. It's exhaustive. It's it's incredible, really. I want to focus on one aspect of it today and do a bit of a mm-hmm. deep dive. So we're going to talk about Edith Cavell, whose story I thought was absolutely fascinating. So let's start at the beginning. Well, not the beginning for her. She was 48 at the beginning of the story, which is another reason I thought it was fascinating. You know, us middle-aged women, I like seeing tales of heroism of people feeling a bit menopausal. Um, <laughs> so it's 1914. Edith Cavell is uh in Belgium when the war breaks out why is she there what's she doing what's happening so Edith Cavell had already been a nurse for at least 10 12 years before the outbreak of the first world war so she was nursing in Belgium and of course with no expectation when she first went to Belgium that war would break out 12 years later and that she would find herself in a very different situation and when war does break out in August 1914, she makes the choice not to go back to Britain, but to just kind of keep herself under the radar, working quietly with soldiers. And our traditional view of Edith, and this is part of the debate, we know that she was helping soldiers, French and British, to escape from German-occupied Brussels. But was she a spy? And that's something which, of course... I delve into in the book. I knew that if I wrote this book, I would have to answer that question and hopefully definitively. Right. Well, we will we will get to the answer to that question. I, I wondered in 1914, do you have any sense of whether are her loyalties to Belgium or the, to they are they to Britain? Um, obviously, in one sense, it doesn't really matter. They're just anti-German at this point. Yes, yeah, she's very firmly on the Allied side, which is, of course, to help liberate, to help towards the liberation, ultimately, 
of occupied Belgium. It's worth saying the difference in the Second World War, Holland was neutral. So mm. a lot of her networks, how she gets the soldiers out through her network is through neutral Holland. And mm. most of France was also unoccupied. So you have British intelligence officers, military intelligence, an early kind of intelligence corps, and officers who are an early form of what later becomes a secret intelligence service, MI6. They are based in France. And somehow we have to get intelligence out of Belgium and occupied Luxembourg, actually, mm. to the British through neutral channels, if it's almost impossible to cross the borders into France and get the intelligence out that way, because London needs information on the German occupation. And how else are they going to get it than from eyewitnesses living behind enemy lines? Let's back up a bit and talk a bit about the um, state of play of British intelligence in 1914. What was formal? What was informal? Who was in charge? Where was it based? Can we just... um you know, just give us a brief overview of people for people who um, aren't familiar with World War One intelligence setups. The Secret Service Bureau formalised British intelligence was formulated in 1909. And during the early part of the First World War, it splits by 1915, it split into two branches, which become MI5, which is in charge of home security, which we know about, and then the Secret Intelligence Service, which in its early form was known as MI1C, Military Intelligence 1, Branches C. That later becomes MI6, of course. And that, the Secret Intelligence Service, as it later becomes, was actually headed by a naval officer, Mansfield Cumming, He's quite famous. We see a lot of pictures of him in most books on the Secret Service. And he had this sort of vision that, along with other military commanders before him, that whoever wins the intelligence game will win the war. So he was very much aware that intelligence was absolutely necessary. He appreciated the German threat to Europe, which was why British intelligence was formalised in 1909, because the threat was perceived to be so grave from Germany. So it's a very nascent, early intelligence service. It's finding its feet. It's trying to develop ways of spycraft. So it's it's relying on amateurs with very little, if any, training. The training, if they had any, was really basic. Cumming posted some of his key intelligence officers, males, male intelligence officers, one on the south coast at Folkestone, on the south coast of England. And that's where a lot of refugees were coming in and out of Europe. So he could mm -hmm. monitor spies and the threat. And that's also one of the means in which intelligence could come through his station. But he also had a station in Holland and he had a station in France. There were a number of intelligence officers in France. So it's a very kind of loose network. But what they're trying to do is gain information on the movement of German troops across occupied Belgium. Because the Germans, when they had to move their troops to the front line, i.e. the areas we think of, like the Somme, the areas of the border with France, they had to cross Belgium. And the only way they could do that at that time was to transport their whole of their 
armaments and their troops, including their horses and their artillery, by train. And at this stage, I mean, there, there, there's, you know, in later conflicts, there's all sorts of other sources of intelligence. You know, there's aerial intelligence, there's, you know, communications intelligence. But presumably at this stage, you know, what you're really looking at mainly for intelligence is people on the ground with eyes watching, right? Yes, you have a very, very basic form of aerial intelligence, which I do go into in that particular chapter of my book. I mean, mm. it's incredibly basic. They did actually fly pigeons over the lines with amateur cameras and it would just every few seconds just click 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 and then they would analyze to see if there was anything relevant in the photographs that was very very basic but essentially what they really needed were men and women on the ground reliable eyewitnesses that could tell them the kind of information they needed and even to pick up information which they intuitively thought the British would need that the British hadn't kind of thought about. So they are one of the most important, vital channels of intelligence. They're, they're the, the most valuable. The, the people directly working for British government in this nascent intelligence service, um, women, any women at this in this time? In the formalised service, they gradually get taken up during the First World War as in a civilian capacity, mainly working out of British embassies or passport control offices. Well, they're not really called embassies at this point. They're more like permit offices. So you have, have one in France, for example. You have them in Bern, in Switzerland. You have them in all of the countries in Europe. You, you have a beginning of these very primitive sort of permit offices when in the days when we don't quite yet have passports that comes quite soon but it's a way of monitoring refugees and whether spies from other countries at this point particularly germany they're not really monitoring the soviets and the russians at this point in early first world war so that that's a, a means if you can control the permits that are going in and out, that are needed to go in and out of your country. You can see who's coming in and out. But you can also spot amongst those movable populations, is there anyone there that would be suitable to send back as spies? And that's what they did. Right. So there's women really involved right from the beginning. Oh, Um, absolutely. Yes. uh, So Edith, she sort of has three layers to her life at this point, then 1914 to 1915. So on the top layer, she's a nurse. I mean, can we, can you tell me a bit about what she's doing in her day job, as it were, and what she, what kind of things she's seeing and handling? Yeah. So in her day job, she really is a nurse. And I don't know, it's kind of language really, whether we can say she uses her job as a cover for what comes next in terms of her work. I think it was just a natural thing for her to help the Allies. So she she isn't there to become a nurse as her cover. She is already a nurse, and that's an important distinction. And she's tending, she and her network, her women are, mainly women, are attending to wounded soldiers. And they are trying to, those that through the network, find their way to to her hospital and she works out of a couple of aristocratic homes as well they know that this network exists and she's trying through her channels to to get these soldiers fit enough to then help them to escape evade capture again and to escape back to britain and to france if they're french soldiers to help them back 
to France. And she's also helping Belgians who want to get out of Belgium to fight with their king in exile. So there are three main kind of groups of soldiers that she's helping. No airmen, of course, at this point. No. So she um, does she she sets up the network herself, we think. Um, yes. Or, and that's an incredible thing anyway. So from your description of the network, it's quite an involved organization. She has lots of people working for her. Can you tell me a bit about the, the kind of structure of the organization and who who's in it with her? Yeah, we don't know a great deal because there are no, as yet, no records that seem to survive for her organisation. She worked with a man called Philippe Abac, B-A-U-C-Q. We don't know an awful lot about him either, but the two of them together run this organisation. She is heading it, so she's most definitely the head. She's overseeing it. She's She's got the structure and she's using her trusted contacts. A lot of them, interestingly, are aristocratic women in Belgium. And these women are using their castles, their big homes to actually shelter soldiers and to help Edith Cavell. But of course, underneath, they're doing a lot more than that, which I know you want to talk about shortly. I do. I did find that completely fascinating. This idea of a kind of network of um, aristocratic Belgian ladies sheltering <laughs> privates under their, you know, whatever it, it, behind their suits of armor in their. It was an extraordinary um, thought. Yeah, it is, and some of them had German soldiers billeted in their chateau, and of course they ran this completely under the radar, under the noses of the German troops. So you might have some German troops garrisoned in your barns or in outbuildings on your land, or even in some of your, some of the officers might be in some of the nice rooms in your chateau. But I love the fact that, you know, they might come down for breakfast and this genteel aristocratic Belgian lady would be giving them, helping them, you know, their breakfast and being charming but she's really working for Edith Cavell. I mean, that takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? And the Germans never suspected. They it never suspected so these women. These women were, and I do use this term in the book, they were invisible in a sense. I mean, okay, the Germans could see them in plain sight, but but they were, what they were actually really doing under the noses of the Germans were kind of invisible. The Germans never, it never occurred to them that these women could be doing other, anything other than washing the laundry or they got their maids to help them wash the laundry. Whatever they're doing in their castle, reading, sewing, I don't know, going about their business, it never occurred to them that these women could be doing anything else. That's a that's a really interesting point and it's a kind of theme that I um, saw throughout the book because one of the... Um, things you start with is that actually there's this sort of erroneous image of the female spy as being a glamorous sexy kind of Matahari yes. type who's kind of you know seducing everybody left right and center and although there are a couple of those figures in in, in the history of women <laughs> in intelligence um quite a lot of time it does seem that women are using their um using the kind of the men's sexism against them in a way because they're kind of hiding in plain sight because they are fooling people who don't think that these women have the capacity to do what they're mm. doing or to you know or to be clever enough to fool them and I th- I think that that's a, such an interesting thread through your book 
Yes, it is. And something I think that's relatively new in our understanding of history of the Second World War and in particular of women's roles within that. This early period is utterly fascinating. And I think it does bust some of those myths. In fact, you mentioned Matahari, who, of course, I'm a little, well, I'm not so harsh on her herself or what's happened with her legacy. And in fact, in her MI5 file, which has been declassified, MI5 opened a file on her because they were concerned she had travelled into England. They were concerned about her risk. And they, in the end, decided, although she did was executed by the French, MI5 decided they really had no evidence against her that she was a double agent working for the Germans. So it's interesting that for all her glamour as a femme fatale, she may not have even been a spy after all. I mean, the evidence is pretty flimsy if you look at her MI5 file. So that's so ironic. Absolutely. There's a, another irony, I guess, that I was thinking when I um, was reading your book, that, that, that if you're a kind of contemporary female intelligence operative you that um our modern society works against you right because you're not underestimated anymore in quite the same way it must be more difficult to get away with what you need to get away with you mean in contemporary times yeah yeah now that we've sort of largely you know arguably dismantled a lot of the patriarchy it means that for female intelligence operatives there's fewer places to hide right well, I don't know. I don't look at anything <laughs> modern. I, I kind of tip into early Cold War. But I suppose from a an educated kind of comment guess, if you like, yeah, I guess that's true up to a point. But I just wonder if there are still cultures where women are invisible and it might still work. But who knows? That's true. Uh, well, one advantage there of being an invisible woman. But um, so back to uh, our main invisible woman, Edith. So she is operating as a nurse she's operating this clandestine network she's running all these uh, aristocratic belgian women do we have any sort of sense of the number of men that uh primarily men i assume who that she managed to um get out of occupied german territory yeah about fifteen thousand french men which is a lot an awful lot yeah in the time that because her her organization basically collapses after her death it doesn't continue so in a relatively short space of time we're talking about 14 months effectively 15 months she and her network are smuggling out around 15,000 French soldiers the British soldiers are much harder I've saw no figures to give us any guidelines on how many British soldiers she managed to get out we just don't have that information Okay, and then um, let's move down to the third layer. So your um, contention in the book is that for a long time it's been disputed whether that was the extent of um, Edith's wartime heroism, which is enough to be going on with. You found out a little bit more about what she was actually up to in that period. I did, because I knew that if I was going to write this book, that was one of the outstanding questions that I felt I ought to try and answer. Is there enough evidence to finally say either way? And when I started out, I had no idea what I would find. You know, I was quite prepared to discover that she wasn't a spy and quite prepared to discover that she was. And I discovered files in Brussels and London, that conclusively definitive evidence puts this whole debate to bed now. She absolutely was running a spy network. She was head 
as a spy mistress, if you like, she founded and headed this intelligence organisation alongside helping the soldiers to escape. It's definitive evidence. And we have the eyewitness. We have several eyewitness accounts. And we even have a list. I don't know how extensive it is, whether there are any more names, but there is certainly a list of names, a couple of pages of A4 that list the names of the men and women who worked for her in her intelligence organisation. That's absolutely incredible. Just, you know, with your historian's hat on for a second, can you just, that must have been quite a moment when you found this evidence in the archive. Yeah, that's an exciting moment. That's the eureka moment when you want to kind of scream and say, yes, but of course you can't because the archives, as you know, all archives are incredibly silent. Everyone's busy working (laughs) on their own thing and you just want to cheer. And you don't know when that moment's going to come. But you pull pull anything that could be relevant and then suddenly you almost don't believe what you're seeing. And so, of course, I copied it. You have to copy these things because you're not (laughs) quite sure if you have read it properly. Of course you have. But it's just so many years later, you know, over 100 years later when this debate was still raging and people come down on either side. But I, I felt that the main wave of opinion was moving towards her not being a spy and so I was moving thinking okay that perhaps that's what I'm going to find and then when you find the definitive evidence you can't believe it but for me it also highlights her heroism and courage I think it makes for us she's far more of a heroine than than even in the last hundred years I think it if you you can't really grade heroism I know I know that on one level but for me, I think it gives us an appreciation that her legacy is far beyond what we ever anticipated. Absolutely. So um, in terms of the, this intelligence network that she was running, can you just talk to me a little bit more about it? So how did it work and what exactly what kind of intelligence were they um, garnering and how were they getting it out? So we don't again, it's it's patchy. So we know that they're using traditional spy craft. We know that some of the women, in one case of two sisters, were working in pairs and they were corresponding using uh, invisible ink. They were smuggling intelligence out, sewn into the lining of garments of the soldiers, that we know. The soldiers, the easiest route out of Belgium was into neutral Holland. Much harder to get out into from Belgium into France but they managed to smuggle them out into Holland and then of course back to the UK or or to France and that's how the intelligence came out and we also know that there was a secret mission to the Admiralty in 1914 that still hasn't been declassified we have no idea what that secret mission was but one of the intelligence officers was escorting a returning soldier a returning wounded soldier to the UK and of course he returned to Belgium with secret papers and without the soldier so that was that was kind of hidden on his person hugely risky hugely risky absolutely and so so they were she she recruited a kind of secondary network of again mainly women no a mix we have this we have a list of the names of her agents 
And we don't know, as I said, if that's extensive enough, whether there were any more than that. The aristocratic women were in there. You'll be really pleased to hear. I am delighted. And not just the aristocratic women. It must have been her very trusted network. That That's all we know, really, that she's using trusted personal networks and family members of those networks to keep it tight, to try and avoid betrayal, ultimately, to try and avoid the Germans discovering that organisation. But I wanted to mention one other thing, which is crucial here. From May, June 1915, the Germans knew that people were coming in and out of the country, particularly they were fleeing, Belgians were fleeing, there was like a brain drain, and the Germans wanted to prevent that, and they also wanted to prevent spies coming in and out. So they erected this high-voltage electric fence, some 450 kilometres, you'll remember this in the book, the 450 kilometres from the north to the south on the Belgian-French border, but also on the Dutch border on the other side. So now they're finding clever ways, including rubber suits and all kinds of things, to get through the fence, throwing intelligence over the wire. We have to get the information back to the British from occupied Germany. Now it becomes really, really tricky and incredibly dangerous for Edith's network. And Edith's network... um... There begins to be some evidence, doesn't there, that the Germans are kind of onto them. Um, And there's some German spies in Britain. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Edith's aware at one point of, she describes the man with a Cockney accent, who's actually seems to be following her or watching her. So she sends a message back that's to go through the British intelligence contact in Holland, in Rotterdam, and also to get back to her mother, because she was just conscious that there were Belgian spies, we picked up most of them, Belgian spies operating in England, and they were trying to befriend certain families that they believed had relatives working against the Germans in occupied Europe. And Edith was just aware that, you know, they could actually inadvertently ask quite innocent questions of her mother maybe approaching her in a cafe or just casual chit-chat. Oh, how's your daughter? Haven't seen her for a bit, whatever. And so Edith sends that message back to her mother. But sadly, by the time her mother receives it, Edith's already dead. Mm. Yeah. But Edith was certainly aware that they could well have been compromised already. There's, um, can we talk a little bit about the jeopardy at stake? Because one of the things that I hadn't quite appreciated, I think, until I read your book, um, having read more about espionage in World War Two than World War One, was the uh, stakes of being caught by the Germans in World War One. Because they're, you know, they're not yeah. Nazis, but it's not a pleasant fate, is it, being caught spying in World War One? No, indeed, or even helping soldiers. I mean, there were high penalties, certainly prison, where the conditions were as bad, including torture, solitary confinement, really horrific. Siegsberg prison, where some of the women were taken in World War One, and that was in Germany, they were transported to Germany. Horrific conditions. Some of them didn't survive that. And we do think of German brutalities here under the Nazis in World War Two, But if they were caught on suspicion of espionage, 
whether it's proved definitively or not, they could be shot at dawn. And some of the women I wrote about did, you know, openly admit to each other what they feared most was the firing squad at dawn. But they still carried on their work because they knew that the British needed the information, the intelligence they were gathering. It was the only way they could ultimately win the war because otherwise the Allies are fighting blind. They cannot see what is happening behind that electrified fence. There's no way of easily getting in and out of the country. So those indigenous Belgian men and women took enormous risks. They crossed borders at vulnerable points, but at any moment, if they were captured, they faced German brutality. Yeah. There's no way, um, I guess, because the inf- there's, there's too scant information about what exactly Edith brought out of quantifying how how much help she was to the Allied cause, you know, directly, is there? At the moment, no, but I am going to keep looking. I do wonder if those archives that none of us are allowed in across the water, (laughs) we're talking about the MI6 headquarters. Of course, MI6, just to remind our audience, never declassifies any of its files. So we don't have access to that as historians, do we, Antonia? No access to those files. Um, one exception, of course, with the official MI6 history that was written by Keith Jeffrey. So it could be that some of the messages that came back through her network survive in those archives. Who knows? Because it is my belief from the trail that I uncovered, it looks like she was working for what we today call the Secret Intelligence Service MI6. And they've never admitted that she was one of theirs. So it's still a little bit ambiguous, but I, I think she probably almost certainly was. The, the paper trail seems to me quite clear from what I uncovered, that she was working for them. So I think that's the only place we would are likely to find anything if they mm. ever allow us in. <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely? Um, yes. <laughs> so Edith, unfortunately, was right. Her network was compromised she was betrayed yeah can you tell me what happened to edith once the germans rumbled her as it were yeah she's arrested in july 1916 and ends up in prison in pretty dire circumstances she's actually held with another one of her network i mean 35 members of her organization are rounded up Five of them ultimately are executed. Most of them face the death penalty, but that's later commuted to life imprisonment and hard labour, which it was equally quite difficult to survive. But she is ultimately tried in a two-day trial, and she's found guilty on very little evidence that the Germans, as far as we can see, have given. The Germans firmly believe she is a British spy, and they sentence her to death. And that desolate, desolate tier national ground where they shot suspected spies was where she ended her life. 2 a.m. on the 12th of October 1915, she was taken out at dawn, as they say, and faced the firing squad. And before that, you know, you never really know how they're going to be in the moments before she knew death was coming. And she prepared herself in prison in the days beforehand. 
And she saw the, the vicar, the priest beforehand. And he later said, she, she quite openly admitted she was prepared for death and she would not have changed her course of action. If she, if she could live her life all over again, she would not have changed what she did. I mean, that for me is extraordinary. She must have been absolutely terrified, but it doesn't seem, she seemed to have been resigned to her fate and the fear seemed to have dissipated at the end. I found it incredibly moving when you mm. when you wrote about that in your book. Her stoicism in the face of death was quite extraordinary. Yeah, and for me there was another moment when I looked when I was going through the the two relevant MI5 files, her own file and the file of her betrayer. And in them, it's all very uh, you know for early on, these sort of photographs fall out. And they are of that desolate ground next to the Tier National. Tier National, as I said, was where they shot suspected spies and traitors. And next to it is this sort of burial ground with the wooden crosses. And there's just a sort of arrow pen mark that's original to 1915, which shows her cross right in the back row. And it's just that feeling of complete desolation. Of course, she's her body is eventually repatriated and she's buried in Norwich Cathedral now. And you make the point in the book that there is an investigation launched um, by the intelligence service into her death, which, again, is a kind of quite a strong clue that the relationship between her and British intelligence was quite close. What did they uncover? Yeah. So why did they mount that investigation if she's not one of theirs? Exactly. Well, that investigation was mounted by Sigmund Payne Best. Anyone who has knowledge of that world will know he worked for MI1C. He worked for the Intelligence Corps in World War One, but but effectively he was part of MI1C later himself, Secret Intelligence Service. And he actually does unmask who the betrayer is, Georges Queen. And it's very clear. He's he's very murky. He doesn't confess to this. But the evidence points to the fact that it was him. There are rumours that there was someone else too that was involved. But MI5, very their files very swiftly come down on the fact that he was the betrayer. And that he hadn't been working for the network for very long. But he had been captured by the Germans. And I'm not sure. It's, again, it's not clear that they've turned him it looks more like he's given information under extreme duress. And that's always incredibly tricky because I guess none of us know how we would behave under those circumstances. So the other thing that was a, a, a link was then the letter from Vernon Kell to um, Edith's mother. Can you tell us about that? I mentioned these photographs that fell out of the file and they were sent by the French authorities, actually, to Vernon Kell. Vernon Kell was the head of MI5. So we talked about Mansfield Cumming, who becomes the head of the Secret Intelligence Service. So they work alongside each other in these two separate organisations. And that, again, is a link to Edith Cavell to British intelligence. So Kell writes to Edith's ma- mother, Kel writes to Edith's mother and encloses these photographs. And the letter is, is edged in black, which, of course, is what they used to do 
when when anything to do with mourning. So that again is quite striking when you see that in the archives, a letter that's, that's edged in black. And these photographs are included in that. And he writes to her and says, I hope that these photographs will be a comfort. And I suppose to us, it seemed quite bizarre. How would we react if we received photographs of the grave of mm. one of our children? Very strange, isn't it? Even if they are adults, even if they are 49 when they're shot at dawn. Uh, very, very strange. But he believed it would be of a comfort to Edith's mother. And she writes back and says, thank you so much. You know, obviously she's struggling with Edith's death, but that it was a comfort to her to see visually her final resting place. But of course, it's not her final resting place later, as we know she's repatriated. Um, the, can we talk a little bit about her legacy? Because um, I also found it very moving in your book, um, your contention that Edith provided a sort of template for heroin and resistance to generations of women who came after her. And I thought that was that was a really lovely way to put it. Can I, can you just talk a little bit about how she sort of resounds through the rest of the history? Yes, I suppose traditionally we understand that she was used as a recruiting tool for women later on. But but I found something quite unusual and something that I hadn't read before, and that is she does become the inspiration for women to spontaneously and actively go out to try and help the Allies, to to find these underground networks, to work for the Allies in both world wars. It's really interesting. And some of these women do specifically say, Edith Cavell was my heroine. It's why I took the risks I did to continue her cause. And the women who are inspired by her are undertaking either dangerous missions or intelligence work. So it's not necessarily that they're inspired to become nurses, although that is an undercurrent in some cases, but primarily she becomes that kind of heroine who inspires them to take up the cause. And some of those women end up losing their own lives as a result. I just find that an incredible thread in the research that was quite unexpected. There are so many stories of heroism in your book. It's almost overwhelming um, <laughs> reading them all in one collected place. Um, and I suppose uh, many of the readers will have one of the, the reaction that I had where you turn inwards and question yourself, would I have that kind of heroism in that kind of circumstance? I think I, in my case, resoundingly, no, um, <laughs> I don't think so. Do you think about that when you're in the archives and you're looking at these women's histories and fates and lives up close how often do you ask that question of yourself yeah I have done not very often but I have done and I suppose kind of twofold response to that really versus you never really know how you're going to react until you're sort of in the situation in the field if you like so I don't know if the crunch comes would I be I would like to think I would not be a bystander I don't know I would like to think I would do something and then in writing this book I did reflect I don't think I could have had the courage to have been dropped behind enemy lines like the women of F section that were dropped into France I really don't think I could have done that but a part of me kind of thinks I might have been okay cycling around occupied Europe 
with my bicycle and my bread in the front with little secret messages hidden, I might might be okay. I might be up for that. But I, who knows if you face a firing squad at dawn, terrifying, but you can't change that fate. So, so those are my reflections. I did think reading it, there are some mothers in there because I do think when I ask myself that question, I think, you know, th- there's the pre-motherhood me and I think I probably could have done something. And there's the post-motherhood me who would have just, you know, yes. stayed inside and barricaded the doors. And I wonder whether that was something that you thought about as well, whether, um, I mean, it's not a question I would ask of a, somebody writing about male intelligence. So in one sense, I feel mm. a bit odd asking it, but do you think, motherhood has an impact on these women and their ability to carry out these incredibly dangerous roles? I think possibly, yeah, because if I think back, I'm not sure I would have risked my life. You know, while my mine were young, I wouldn't even fly without them because I thought, you know, what if they lost their mother? Yeah. So I think think that's a valid point. And it's interesting what emerges through the book is how many women are of middle age, how many of them are in their late 40s and beyond. And some of them are older in their 80s who are working for these intelligence networks. And perhaps they move to a different stage. They've all had families. A lot of them have had families. But we also have examples in the book where there are women carrying out intelligence duties with children in tow, if you like, and that becomes tricky, but the intelligence services do make some allowances, but they're not, on the whole, agents being dropped into to dangerous situations in occupied Europe. There are still women in dangerous situations behind enemy lines doing dangerous things. So I think it's quite nuanced, and there's probably a lot more that we have to learn as historians, you know, unpack more of these stories as we go forwards. You know, what I tried to do in this book, and, I, and like you said, it, it's full of incredible detail and stories I didn't want it to be flimsy in the sense that I really wanted people to come out of it thinking oh my goodness the overwhelming legacy just to get a a glimpse that this is an enormous legacy and I like to think the detail of the book the research and the sheer number of women I managed to include across civilian and uniformed services gives us a sense of that a kind of awe and respect. It's not definitive, but it's a pretty full history. But I like to think that that's one thing readers will take away. Oh, my goodness, I never knew there was all this hidden legacy of these women. Oh, well, I certainly took that away. I, I came away with enormous awe and respect for the for the women involved. And also, to be honest, for the historian who managed to put it all into <laughs> one book. So... <laughs> There was um, a challenge, I tell you. It was a challenge. But... <laughs> well, no, it's an incredible feat. And um, I think that's a wonderful note on which to um, end. So, Helen, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about Edith. And I I really hope that maybe when the paperback's um, uh, coming out, we'll meet again and, and pick up another couple of stories from this amazing book. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow us. We've got General David Petraeus on the evolution of military intelligence coming up. Roger Morehouse on how resistance and intelligence networks brought news of the Holocaust to a disbelieving world. And we'll go further back in history to uncover the story of 16th century maverick, philosopher and probable spy Giordano Bruno with best-selling novelist S.J. Paris. So stay with us. Don't miss out. Come in from the cold with Spymasters.